Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. So today, we'll be talking about NLP for evidence-based medicine with our guest, Byron Wallace. Byron is an assistant professor at Northeastern University and holds an adjunct appointment at Brown University in affiliation with the Center for Evidence Synthesis in Health. Byron works on machine learning, data mining, and natural language processing with an emphasis on applications in health informatics. Welcome to the program, Byron. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. To get started, could you tell us what is evidence-based medicine? Why should we care about it? (laughs) Sure, yeah. So it's kind of a funny term, right? Like the jokey definition that I sometimes like to give is that evidence-based medicine is kind of what you would have hoped all medicine is. But it, it turns out this is not the case, right? So for historical context, Evidence-based medicine, or EBM, kind of came to the forefront as a paradigm, a sort of radical paradigm, I guess in the 80s. It's really a data-driven view of how we should practice medicine. It's very much an empiricist view. And the fundamental idea is that we ought to inform the treatment of patients using the totality of the available evidence, right? So basically, you want to have some sort of systematic and ideally statistical aggregation of the entire evidence that might bear upon a particular clinical question that one might have. For example, you know, what treatment should I use for this particular condition? And so you, you want to somehow synthesize all of the evidence that's out there, and then you want to use that to inform treatment decisions. And that's really just the basic idea behind EBM. Can I ask a clarifying question here? Yes. I imagine there has been medical literature for a whole lot longer since the 1980s. And, and so... Surely people have done scientific studies on medicine before this. So what's different? Absolutely. I think it's really a point of emphasis. It's more of a a sort of named paradigm, I guess. You're exactly right that, of course, trials, of course, predate evidence-based medicine. I think one of the fundamental things about evidence-based medicine is instead of being able to like cherry pick individual trials that might support a particular treatment agenda that you have, I guess one of the key differences is that in EBM, one specifies upfront, a priori, a clinical question, and then one systematically goes out and finds all of the trials that, for example, address that question. And I think this notion of like aggregating the individual trial results in a robust and reproducible and systematic way is really one of the hallmarks of EBM. But, but of course, again, you're right. Like It's not that EBM is, is the first time that data was used to support treatment decisions. It's just that it doesn't happen as often as one might like. So how can NLP research help with evidence-based medicine? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think it's, it's such a ripe space for NLP folks. So if you think about what happens, we sort of have this insane system, right? So the way this works is we have these agencies that fund, let's say, trials, right? So clinical trials. And the way that we subsequently disseminate the results of those trials kind of insanely is via unstructured or free text articles, right? So basically, these are just publications that describe the conduct and results of clinical trials. And consequently, we have these other groups that are then funded to go out and systematically synthesize the results from these different trials that have been published. And so that, of course, requires them wading their way through the literature, unstructured texts, and identifying articles that meet their so-called inclusion criteria. So basically, these are articles that answer their clinical question in the sense that they are trials that enroll the patient population of interest, for example, you know, diabetics or people with some particular condition. And they included some interventions of interest, like particular drugs or particular treatments. 
and they measured some specific outcome. So doing this, first of all, identifying the set of articles that are out there that describe trials that meet this inclusion criteria is a lot of work. So researchers at evidence-based practice centers or other groups that do these sorts of syntheses will end up retrieving from Medline or, or PubMed, you know, on the order of sometimes tens of thousands of articles that may or may not meet their inclusion criteria. And what they'll do, uh, and I know this because I, I spent some time as like an embedded computer scientist uh, at Brown, which, which you mentioned, in the Center for Evidence Synthesis. And I watched these doctors and other highly trained personnel, like biostats types, they were literally printing out thousands of abstracts and sort of assessing one by one whether or not this met their inclusion criteria, right? So right away, you can see a vast opportunity for classification sort of methods to speed that process up. And so that's one obvious uh, area. There are problems from the methodological side or difficulties, right? So this is an application in which there's severe class imbalance of those tens of thousands of articles that you pull. You're probably only going to identify, you know, on the order of tens that are actually relevant to your clinical question. And so that, that needs to be kept in mind from a sort of modeling perspective. So that poses some difficulties. So after this, of course, once one has identified a set of, let's say, tens of articles or, or more that have been identified, one has to extract the structured information that they need for their synthesis. And the synthesis is going to both be statistical, ideally, so you'll basically find, for example, the odds ratios that were reported in uh, each individual study. And you'll also find other information about the trial, like what's, how many participants were enrolled. And also some things that are a little bit more subtle, like is this a quality study? And the way that that might be determined is using what's called a risk of bias assessment. And um, so there's this notion of risk of bias that's been formally codified in something called the Cochrane Risk of Bias Tool. And so um, all of these things are things that we could view as NLP tasks and in, in, I have, and others have as well, not just me. And so I think there's just a lot of room for models that can identify relevant um, articles and extract the relevant information from those articles. And I think it's important to, to keep in mind that it's unlikely we'll replace the folks doing, the domain experts that are doing evidence synthesis, but I think we can aid them. So I think that's another interesting component of this work is that you really want to design models that are, are meant to help um, humans performing this task to make their lives, I guess, less miserable. And we don't really have in mind completely automating evidence synthesis, at least um, not just yet. So I'm curious how inclusion criteria typically specified. It seems like it will not be easy to express this in, in, in a way that our models can, can accurately represent. Yeah, it's a really good question. At least traditionally in EBM, the way that clinical questions are thought about are as what are called PICO frames. So this refers to the population, the intervention, the comparator, and the outcome. As a silly kind of toy example, the population might be individuals who you know, have migraines. And the intervention might be aspirin, the comparator might be Tylenol or a placebo, and the outcome might be, I don't know, duration of headache. Right? In practice, they'd be much more complex than this, but that would be like an example uh, of a PICO frame. And the question that's implicitly specified by this PICO frame is basically, is aspirin more effective than Tylenol with at, sort of at reducing the duration of headache in patients that suffer from these migraines, right? In that sense, it's actually a pretty well-specified question. Um, and then the task is to try to infer, I guess, whether or not the evidence agrees with this or not. 
Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess as as you add more complexity, so uh, mm. I don't know, different ages or different ethnicities um, to the population. I, I guess I'm, what I'm not sure about is what kind of complexities should we expect in the inclusion criteria and what is a good framework to represent this information? Or is there an existing one that people typically use? I think a lot of times the P element of the PICO frame that implicitly specifies the question is often really just going to be a condition and it's typically not going to be super fine-grained. The hope is that these trials are going to generalize to the population at large. So you might see things, I suppose, like you know infants with a particular condition or something like this. But I think in general, the population frame is really going to primarily be encoding the condition or the disease in many cases that the question involves, right? In terms of encoding this, of course, free text or unstructured text is the obvious option, not ideal in many ways. There are structured vocabularies in this space. So there are things like the mesh ontology that, you know, one can try to map these things to as well. So when I hear you describe this, what it makes me think of is going over, say, as a paper comes into PubMed or um, just taking the existing corpus, I, I would take each paper individually and extract from it a Pico frame. And then when someone has a question they want to answer, they want to create some synthesis, they will write down a Pico frame. And then I just have like a matching problem or a retrieval problem on all of these papers. Is, is that the kind of approach or is there something different going on here? Yeah, so it's a great comment. I mean, it would be nice if Pico search and that and as like a structured search over the Pico frames were available. Uh, in general, folks have looked at this, but it is sort of relatively new that what you've described has been done. And that's actually something we're working on now as well. So the idea is, as you say, identify all of the articles that describe, let's say, randomized control trials, and then extract the Pico snippets, I guess, and index those separately so that you can then subsequently issue structured queries over those elements. This is, at present, not really doable. There are various search engines that will give you Pico frames, but many of them are actually just doing <laughs> unstructured search underneath that. One of the reasons that this is the case is because there just hasn't been training data for it. And this is, I think, one of the things that make this an interesting domain. You know, supervision is hard to come by. So we've done some work on trying to, to fix that problem. So we've released this corpus EBM NLP that has a lot of these PICO elements tagged in abstracts with the mind towards doing exactly what you were describing, basically. And so, you know, we hope that is a boon to research in this area. And we hope that people make use of that data set and we're making use of it for this reason. And we envision technologies like that. The only, the only other thing I would mention in that space is with, the, with a mind toward retrieval, another kind of approach that we've explored has to do with inducing what we refer to as disentangled representations of abstracts or articles. And the idea there is to build a model using weak supervision. We end up borrowing from kind of previously conducted systematic reviews for which we have access to sort of abstractive summaries of the respective population intervention comparator and outcome elements. These aren't verbatim quotes, but we have kind of abstractive summaries that domain experts generated. And we've used this to train models that can give you back for a particular abstract, not just one kind of monolithic vector representation or embedding, but in our case, actually three distinct embeddings, one that captures the population, one that captures the intervention and the comparator. We collapse those together because the distinction is actually arbitrary ultimately, and one that captures the outcomes. And, and the idea, again, is exactly to facilitate retrieval so that you could search for things that are a match on this population 
using, let's say, cosine similarity between the population vectors, but maybe you don't care about the, the interventions or the outcomes. So I, you're exactly right that this is the direction, but it's surprisingly not really available yet. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you mentioned weak supervision there very briefly, though it wasn't very well explained. Let me um, try to summarize what I, what I think you meant, and you can see if we're right. Sure. Basically, you have a bunch of syntheses that have already been performed that have a described frame, and you have with that a set of papers that were actually included in this synthesis. And so you can essentially label all of the Pico frames in all of those papers with the synthesized one and use that as training data. That's exactly right. And the way that we actually do this is we sort of derive what we refer to in the paper describing this work as sort of triplets. And the triplets express that this paper describes a trial that is more similar with respect to the population than this other paper, basically. So there are, there are these sets of three which specify like relatively similar, but we use it in exactly the way you describe. Yeah, that also helps to answer the other question I was going to ask, which was, do you have a case where you might get multiple different frames from a single paper? Uh, does this question make sense? It does make sense. And that's actually one of the interesting aspects of this as well. Because, for example, many trials, uh, in fact, I, I think the majority of trials will make comparisons between multiple interventions and also make comparisons with respect to multiple outcomes, right? So, for example, in addition to duration of headache, I don't know, they might measure mortality or like pain of headache or something like this, right? Like, and so because of this, that would correspond to a different outcome. And many times the outcome that you cared about might not be the one that the researchers that were doing the trial were really the most interested in. And so this is also like a really interesting aspect of this space, I think. So you mentioned an aspect of uh, quality and bias when humans are assessing uh, or the experts are trying to assess each of these articles. Could you give an example of uh, maybe an extreme example of, of articles that should be excluded? Yeah, so I wouldn't go so far to say that they should or should not be excluded. The way that this is done is researchers will try to appraise the risks of statistical bias that are present in a reported clinical trial result. So as a practical example, the Cochrane Risk of Bias tool defines a couple of different what they call domains. One of these domains is the risk of bias due to improper random sequence generation, right? So when you randomize folks to either get, you know, treatment A or treatment B, it's really important that you don't, for example, I don't know, like do this based on their last name or other, or like when they enrolled or like other things that could introduce kind of weird biases. But, you know, surprisingly, sometimes this happens. So that's kind of the simplest case. Another case is allocation concealment. Basically, the people that are doing the randomization should be blinded to which group is going to get sort of which treatment, right? And similarly, when you do outcomes assessment, the folks doing that should not know which group each person is in that they're assessing. So these are these different domains where if you don't execute trial properly, you'll introduce biases into the result. Again, Cochrane, which is an international collaboration that performs these reviews in health and is widely respected. They've performed many of these kinds of analyses of trials based on the articles describing them. And what you're looking for are basically little phrases where the person that ran the trial, the author of the study, is saying, you know, here's exactly how we did random sequence generation. Here's exactly how we assess the outcomes. Or, or, and here's how the, the person was blinded. It's kind of analogous to how in our papers, you really want someone to tell you exactly how they set their hyperparameters. And if they don't, like you're a little bit suspicious, right? It's a similar story, right? So we've built models that can automate this process. So in fact, this is one of the things that we've had, I think, the most success at, practically speaking, 
because we have access to a relatively large set of, of it's a little bit noisy, but we have supervision that we can derive from the Cochrane database with respect to risk of bias. And we've used that to train models that can automatically do risk of bias assessment. Again, we have in mind semi-automation. So basically, we actually recently ran a randomized trial of our own where we had our prototype tool, which integrates the natural language processing that does the automated risk of bias assessment. And we randomized folks doing evidence synthesis to either be shown those predictions and get a pre-populated risk of bias table or not, basically. And the question is, does it, does it speed up the review process? And do they like using it, right? And the answer is, seems to be yes. So that work is actually currently under review. But the upshot was the predictions seem to help them and they seem to enjoy using the tool. And I actually think that analysis is, is really important. It's hard to do and it's kind of a pain, but it's hard because you know, we have a bunch of previous work on this where you know, we report F scores and, and whatnot. As the years have gone by, we've produced various sort of versions of the model, neuralizing everything and adding some other some other cool stuff. But I think in order to know if it's really helpful, you really have to see if the humans use it, I guess. Yeah, that's really exciting to hear that you're doing this sort of random trial. So you didn't say anything about like the quality. So how do you actually assess the quality? I see. So, so when you say quality, what do you have in mind? Like the quality of what? Well, I, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is recall. So when the top set who are shown the predictions, what percentage of the articles that the other group covered by this one? I see. Yeah. So, so you mean in terms of the, the quality of the model, the metrics, basically. There are two aspects to this, right? So in risk of bias assessment, you are ultimately making a classification for each domain. For example, you're saying with respect to random sequence generation, is this article at high or low risk of bias, right? And you're saying the same, it's multitask in the sense that you're also saying that for allocation concealment and some other domains. Simultaneously, and perhaps more importantly, the model needs to provide a rationale supporting that, that judgment, that assessment. And so um, our models, for example, when we show them, these are full text articles, and when we pre-populate the table, we say, look, the model says, we think this is at, low risk of bias with respect to allocation concealment, and here's why, and we point to a phrase in the, in the paper. Because of this, we have sort of two sets of metrics, one that quantifies our performance with respect to retrieving the snippets, and one that sort of quantifies how well we do at the overall classification task, right? And so what we find is that we're able to retrieve relevant snippets with high precision. This depends on how you do the assessment. Off the top of my head, we're not quite competitive with obviously human baselines, but we're, we're sort of getting there. And with respect to the overall judgment, for some domains, we do quite well. For random sequence generation, for example, we can do, I think, roughly as well as, as humans, as we've evaluated using the Cochrane database as a proxy, because we have multiple labels for humans. And you know, it's a, it's a slightly subjective task, I should mention. So humans themselves are not perfect. We're worse still in the overall assessment than, than the humans. So I guess what I'm saying is like the, the retrospective metrics are quite good. I, I apologize off the top of my head. I don't, um, I don't have any numbers on hand, but we've reported these in various situations using retrospective data. But for this, for this particular trial that I'm describing, because we already had those numbers and they looked pretty good, we were really interested in the usability of it and, and that kind of thing, I, I suppose. Uh, I should also say external groups to us have done uh, assessments. There was a paper that came out in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology by a different group that actually assessed robot review. Sorry, we call this prototype robot reviewer. And they, they did an assessment of 
its risk of bias assessment. And they, I, I often show this in talks because I, I sort of, I get a kick out of it, but they, they end up concluding that Robot Reviewer actually performed better than humans on, uh, on two of the domains, which I, <laughs> like, I'm not sure that I fully, like, I enjoy that as a notion. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know that I would fully uh, endorse that position, but. Well, it's great to hear. At least we're getting close, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's useful enough that you were able to find collaborators who are willing to use it, right? That's uh, that's that's one thing that's like really amazing about this space is the kinds of people that do evidence synthesis for a living. They really want this technology. Like they 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 really hate doing the grunt work that goes into a lot of what they have to do, and so the the enthusiasm for this is just really exciting, and it's one of the reasons that I really like the space. Great. So another question that I had in mind is how do you aggregate this information? So let's say you extracted the, the numeric values that correspond to each of the outcomes that you care about from a set of articles. Do you aggregate them by giving different articles different weights depending on the number of subjects? How do you do this? So this is actually a whole subspecialty that in statistics and in, in biostats, I guess, called meta-analysis. So basically, there's a whole kind of research community that's really focused on these meta-analytic methods. The idea is ultimately you're taking some sort of a weighted average and often those weights are going to be inversely proportional to um, the standard errors, right? So you, you want to you give more weight to studies that have high precision and of course this correlates quite strongly with sample size. So yeah, so you're exactly right. Now we're nowhere near the point where we can reliably extract the actual data elements that are necessary for meta-analysis. So fully automated meta-analysis is quite a ways away, I'm afraid. Um, but, you know, we'll get there. So the, the previous step that I kind of like assumed that we, we could get it is extracting the values, the numeric values for the outcomes, whether it's uh, the primary or secondary outcomes of the study. How well are we doing there? Are there existing data sets? There's practically no data on that. Um, so in terms of actually extracting the numbers for particular comparisons, very hard. And as far as I know, there's no annotated data sets for this. Uh, there's been like a little bit of work a couple of years ago. There was a system called Exact that would extract some numbers, but trying to actually tie reported numerical results, which may be on different scales and so forth, to the ICO frames, I guess, is really hard. So I will say we have a new corpus that we're releasing with an upcoming NACL paper. So this is a NACL 2019 paper. And what this corpus comprises are full text articles from the open access subset, uh, articles from PubMed. This means they're publicly available. And these describe randomized control trials. And what we have in that data set is we've hired doctors via Upwork to basically generate ICO frames, so interventions, comparators, and outcomes that are described in a particular trial. And then we have them also, well, we have a whole kind of annotation pipeline, but basically we end up collecting labels for those, which says for this ICO frame, this article provides evidence that supports the use of the intervention as opposed to the comparator with respect to this outcome. And we collect multiple of these for each article, right? And so this is sort of interesting because you know, for any given article, again, you have multiple ICO frames and the answer will be different. But there we simplified the task. We treat it as a, a three-way classification task of significantly decrease, neutral, or significantly increase. And we kind of punt on trying to extract the actual numerical information um, as a, I guess, a compromise to try to make progress. That's interesting. 
So are there other tasks that are related to evidence-based medicine uh, away from the meta-review or meta-analysis type of work uh, that also NLP could help with? Some of the things that come to mind are uh, electronic health records uh, that show up in, in, in hospitals. Um, yeah, so it's a really good question. It, it's something I think about a lot because I, I mean, this is a, a space that I've worked in for, for a while. Aside from evidence-based medicine stuff, like I, I also have worked on you know, EMR and that kind of thing. And I think NLP has a lot of potential there as well, of course. But it's interesting because you don't see a lot of crosstalk between um, folks that are working on, uh, let's say, EMR and, and those that are working on the sort of trials literature. Like in the future, I think we'll see more of this, right? Because it, it makes total sense that what you really want to be able to do is you want to take into account the evidence that exists in clinical trials that have been done. And you want to somehow combine that with information about individual patients that's extracted from, for example, the EMR. How exactly you do that, of course, you know, we don't know yet, but we know that it's something that we should do. So certainly there's been a lot of work on trying to extract information from EMR. I, I think we'll see more of it. Yeah, I'm also reminded of some um, by our man Kohan, where he analyzed Reddit comments that people have in social media trying to assess, um, like to try to, to extract, like, for example, comments that may indicate uh, people are diagnosed with a certain disease, which it seems like it's a very open-ended space and there's a lot of potential for contributions. There's not enough enough work on this area. You know, I, the space in general, I think what precludes a lot of NLPers from working in it is, you know, there's not a lot of data sets that you can just kind of pick up and, and work with. And on the EMR side, MIMIC has been, so there's a, there's a data set called MIMIC, which is an anonymized set of EMRs from an ICU. This is actually, you can get your hands on, it's publicly available now. And that's actually been a huge boon for the community. But I think just in general, there just isn't a lot of data sets that, that one can go and pick up and start, start making progress on. Hopefully that will change. And that's one of the reasons that in recent work, we've really focused a little, uh, quite a bit on corpus creation, because I've seen that as a need. There's a lot of opportunities in this sort of broad space of, I guess, NLP plus health. I hope that more people get involved. I guess I'm a little bit surprised to hear that there's a corpus of electronic medical records, even anonymized, that's available. Like, it seems like that would be too fraught with privacy issues. Yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, I think they've, they really took care. And um, they're, they're, you do have to jump through like a few hoops still. You have to get your hands on Mimic. You have to kind of register. You have to go through human subjects training through your institution. But once you do that, if you're a graduate student, you'll tell them who your advisor is or who you're working with. And they'll, they'll sort of confirm that that person is indeed who you're working with. And, and then you can, you can use it. And, you know, it's been a really impactful thing to have a common data set to try out these different models. And there's loads of sort of weird and unstructured text that are in these notes that is, you know, could be harnessed, but it's it's a challenging space. Yeah, I also heard from a friend who works on this area is it's not that hard to get hands on data, but publishing this data. So because like the researchers in, in the medical institutes are very keen on, on making advances in this area, but you're, they're not, of course, they're not allowed to uh, to publish the data. I see, the, yeah. The, you do get permission of using this data for research purposes, but they're not allowed to republish. Oh, you're absolutely right. So I think those of us that, like, you know, for example, I work a lot with sort of partners healthcare here and in various hospitals in Boston. And so we can run experiments on their data, but subsequently we, you know, it's not really open in the sense that we obviously can't go and make those publicly available. And I think Mimic has been really valuable in providing that, that common that common kind of touch point 
So I just that's a really practical example that we're currently working on. We're kind of doing this analysis of different encoders for sort of different encoder models that would be best for the clinical nodes in the EMR. And we can do, we're doing this with some data set, with a data set that we have from Partners Healthcare that we can't distribute. But then we're subsequently, we're, we're also doing it with the Mimic data set and seeing if the trends, first of all, if they hold, but then also that's reproducible. And so there's sort of like a, a medium there that we can, that we can reach, which is, which is nice. Yeah, I remember Alex Mola had a, a blog a few years ago talking about the difficulty of releasing some kind of data should not prevent us from doing research on this on this data. And I mean, of course, there's like, ideally, we'd like everything to be open and, re, and reproducible. But if, if that's not the case, we shouldn't stop working on it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's complicated, right? But yeah, I mean, I, obviously, there are real privacy concerns. But on the other hand, you you do want open science. So I think striking that balance is you know, something that we'll continue to negotiate and hopefully muddle our way through. Right. So I'd like to give a shout out to the BioNLP workshop. It's happening with ACL this year. The due date for submissions is April 26th. It's been really a helpful catalyst in the NLP community to bring more people into this area. Absolutely. It's a really great group and the organizers are wonderful. So that's that's definitely true. There's also at EMNLP, or historically, I think it's been at EMNLP, there's the International Workshop on Health Text Mining and Information Analysis. So that's another place to look, and, uh, and hopefully we see more of these as we grow. I'd also give a shout out, I co-organize something called Machine Learning in Healthcare, and we'd love to see more, at least I'd love to see more NLP submissions coming in. And so this we hold every year. This year it's going to be at uh, UMich in Ann Arbor. So that would be another place that, that might be a good fit for some of this work. So is it a workshop independent of other conferences? It's its own conference. So the, the main aim of machine learning for healthcare was to make sure that we had physician representation. So a bunch of us that felt like we kept ending up in roomfuls of computer scientists. And I mean, I like computer scientists, but I think when you're doing this kind of interdisciplinary work, it's really important to, to really have real conversations with the people that are the domain experts. And so that's kind of where MLHC came from. And there wasn't really... I think we sort of all agreed that the last thing the world needs is another conference. But on the other hand, we really we really felt like there was a need, and it's been a lot of fun. So we held it. We actually we held it here at Northeastern two years ago, and then last year we had it at Stanford, and it's been growing, and it's it's good people. But yeah, we're still kind of getting getting it off the ground. That's fantastic. Thank you for doing the uh, community work there. It's, I, I know it's not easy to uh, plan for a conference. Sure, sure. Did you have any other thoughts that you'd like to talk about on this topic before we conclude? Well, I guess the only other thing I would say is, aside from sort of its practical importance, I think this general space, from just from a strictly sort of NLP perspective, is really interesting because it, it sort of highlights a lot of, I guess, shortcomings or issues with state-of-the-art approaches. A few concrete examples, right? So this is a domain in which supervision, we've, we've touched upon these issues, right? But supervision is very expensive. We don't have much of it. It's also not an area where you can just kind of throw up tasks on Turk. I mean, you can try. And in fact, we've, we've tried in various ways. And, and you can get stuff, but you, it, it takes effort, right? Like it's generally speaking, because of the domain expertise requirement, it's non-trivial to get supervision. 
So that's interesting. And then there's, of course, the inherent issue of needing some sort of transparency or interpretability of models. Now, exactly how to define that and so forth is a hot topic, but it's obviously important in this sort of broad domain of health, right? I think for obvious reasons. I think it's an exciting area, not only for its practical applications, but also for the core technical challenges that, that it motivates. So I'd encourage more NLPers to come work on these problems. Totally. It's a reality check. How far did we actually go in NLP? I think so. I think that's fair, yeah. All right, thank you very much for joining us today. That was fun. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I had a lot of, lot of fun chatting.